Welcome to this week's Two Men in the Middle. This is where two men in the middle of the country get together and talk about current events, politics, and other important things. I'm Craig Huey. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I said important things because it feels like for the first time in a long time in a podcast, because the majority of this podcast is spent during the Trump presidency just trying to pick apart Trump's tweets and trying to understand anything that's happening. Now it seems like, Brandon, we've got some real world, real serious issues happening that need to be discussed. And to your point, since our last podcast, the world seems to have changed completely. The entire world has changed overnight. Our last podcast seems like it was decades ago, just because the geopolitical situation is so much more tense now. And for the first time, I think the majority of our podcast will be devoted to international geopolitical climate with what is happening with Russia and Ukraine. It's the only thing to talk about. It is, yeah. So in my usual punditry um, expertise, I think the last time we potted, I said, there's no way Putin fully invades Ukraine. Right. You were the most doubtful that that yeah. was going to happen. Very skeptical. Right. Because what's the upside? Because I always think through what's the easiest victory, what's the most I can get with the least amount of resources spent. And if I'm Putin, I take these two breakaway regions that there's been fighting since 2014. Uh, I declare them republics. I, I, we go in and occupy them. Now I've got a foothold to, to place forces within Ukraine. We maybe lob a few shells at Kiev, see if I can push um, Zelensky into signing some neutral neutrality pact, which is something that Putin is really big on. I think Putin thought that'll take, what, 48, 72 hours, we'll call victory, and we'll all just go back to where we were. That's how I thought this was going to go down. That was obviously wrong. No. Yeah, obviously, he wants the entire country. And I think this is where history is a guide, because Putin is motivated by a sense of grievance and a sense of legacy and this whole idea about making Russia strong. He feels that Russia has been embarrassed and has been held in low esteem by the West, by other powers. And this goes all the way back to when he was a KGB agent stationed in East Germany when the fall of the Berlin Wall occurred. And he described that moment throughout the years as the biggest regret of his life, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And so from that point on, he has talked in many cases quite openly about wanting to recreate a Russian empire, going even prior to the Soviet Union, when the the Russian reach across Europe was so great that they touched Finland and Sweden. I mean, Putin is talking about uniting Russian-speaking people under a Russian umbrella. We haven't heard talk like that for 50 to 75 years in Europe. No, and I'm glad you brought that up, because if you look at that on its face, this whole idea that anywhere where there's a Russian minority population, Russian-speaking minority, that Russia has a duty to go in and def- to any of those countries and defend that group of people. That is such a, an outrageous and just insane concept because it gives Russia the authority to go into an untold number of countries, really, and just to, and to claim that they are doing so on behalf of, quote-unquote, their people. And to your point, Putin is mixing old Soviet Union-style territory grabs and boundaries and borders that were established during the Soviet Union. And he's mixing that with old school Russian blood and soil talk. Right. And what is he hoping to get out of this? This is what, this is what I don't understand. How does all of that talk impact Russia and Russian people? You mentioned something that was really interesting, embarrassing, that Russia does not want to be embarrassed, and they don't want to be seen as something less 
than what the Western European NATO countries are. This is something that goes back hundreds of years historically for Russia. Right. This, this understanding that we are not necessarily like our European neighbors. We're certainly not Asian. We are something completely different. And our country spans Europe and Asia, and, and it's just it's a, a bridge massive, between Europe and Asia. But yeah. how the Russian people see themselves is very curious at this point in time. It is, and I think what's really intriguing too is in his initial speech that he gave the declaration of war and the the so-called reasoning behind the invasion, he claimed that there is no such thing as an independent Ukraine, that Ukraine is not a country, that it is part of Russia, and that they are Russians. And it seems to be completely oblivious with the last several decades since the fall of the Berlin Wall because Ukraine has been an independent country. They have intentionally struggled to break free of Russia's influence. and But also, um, Russians see Ukrainians as kindred people. They're and that's cousins. why this cousins, yeah, and that's why this creates complications for Putin because he's essentially attacking and slaughtering, you know, uh, people that the Russians see as as cousins, as neighbors. Yeah. And this isn't like going after, you know, some uh, an Asian counterpart or, you know, somewhere that's far flung. These are people, in many cases, Ukrainians have relatives that live in Russia. They have, you know, close family members. And so that that part is also odd from, from that perspective in terms of uh, creating this justification. The other thing that's just completely out of left field is saying that he wants to denazify Ukraine. That, that's, that, yeah. that Zelensky that's is this stupid. drug yes. addicted Nazi. So again, I guess from a historical standpoint, the Nazis were the last great big power that you know the Soviets fought, the Russians fought. But it's just it's so just out of reality. It's it's not based in reality, and it's so cynical. And you, you would think that Putin would be smart enough to realize that. So you're you're just going to just label a, you know the Jewish uh, democratically elected president of Ukraine a Nazi, yeah. and people are going to fall for that. Really, I, I always <laughs> love it when somebody lobs Nazi at somebody who's Jewish. Right. It kind of defeats the point right out of the box. Brendan, let's let let's play Tucker Carlson for a minute. There's this whole Oh, do we have to? <laughs> there's this whole interesting thread and a lot of this I I'm hearing from the right from certain parts of the GOP that let's recognize the United States's role in pushing Russia and NATO's role into pushing Russia into doing what they did. So there seems to be, and Tucker came out very strong with this until Putin started bombing apartment complexes and hospitals. He, he's backed off a little bit and changed his tune a little bit. But what they're presenting is that America and NATO has kept encroaching on Russia, that Ukraine had a duly elected government that the United States did help overthrow. That is true, by the way. Right. And that... If you reverse the scenario, and this was the United States, and China was amassing troops in Mexico, we would never allow that. We would never allow an enemy to establish a military foothold at our border. I think most Americans would agree with that. But what they're they're leaving out huge swaths of historical History, yeah. evidence and, and what's happening on the ground right now. The biggest one being NATO is not... NATO is a completely defensive organization. NATO's never attacked anybody. We've never invaded anybody. Right. It was established as a military pact so that if one of the NATO countries was attacked, the others would rise too. It was to create a counterpart to the Soviet Union in size because Russia 
and, and the Soviet Union are so large. And so any of those small European countries by themselves would not be able to withstand an attack from yeah. Russia or from the former Soviet and Union. NATO doesn't annex new members. No. People ask to join. There's a vote, and that's how they join. So like the Baltic regions and Poland and all of these countries to the 90s and early 2000s that joined NATO, they did it because they specifically wanted to protect themselves from potential Russian aggression. Right. So it's kind of hard to say you, you keep adding people to your alliance that basically they're being added because they want some defense from potential military aggression from you, Putin. That's why NATO has grown. And, you know, it would be one thing, again, another pretense is that this is happening because Ukraine has been really lobbying to join NATO, obviously. And so that is what pushed Putin over the edge. But let's not forget that when he was amassing troops at Ukraine's border, as part of these, you know, so-called talks that he was having, peace talks, which turned out to be a complete lie, he had no intention of, you know, compromising or coming to a negotiation. But he said his terms for negotiating were for NATO to go back to pre-1991 borders, yeah, which, which meant which meant no Poland, yeah. which meant, I mean, which is one of the crucial countries yeah, in Poland NATO. Poland is the linchpin to right. NATO in Eastern Europe. You have to have, and, and for those who know history, Poland, when it fell to the Nazis in World War II, it was the linchpin for what started yeah. World War II. And and also for the, it was really the, the border other than Eastern Germany for Soviet Union versus um, yeah. Western Europe. So that was a non-starter. So to, to claim that it was solely Ukraine when it wasn't, I mean, it was these preposterous yeah. terms that were never going to and be agreed NATO upon. And there's NATO countries that border Russian territory now. There are. So Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, yeah. which are the three Baltic countries. So the thing that he's trying to, to say that I need to take this action to create exists in other areas on his border. So right. that kind of takes take takes that out. I guess there there is a logic to Putin's actions if you look at it from the perspective of my military rival is NATO. They continuously expand. They have broken treaties with me where they said they wouldn't expand, and they have. They are coming now. They are on my border, and this is the last piece to where, until I feel like I'm completely surrounded by NATO. So I understand Putin's urge to do something. To do this, though, you mentioned, Brandon, that Putin now has changed to where he wants to take Ukraine. Do we really think his goal is to occupy and hold Ukraine? It's to destroy it. It's not to occupy it. Do you think, he, do you think he's going to destroy it? Maybe that's the best question. Do you think he'll destroy Ukraine? And to define our terms, I mean, just flatten major cities. Yes. I, I mean, I think we're close to that point now. I, I think as far as face-saving, I mean, he his military has proved to be woefully inept. Yes. So that is not working to plan. And he, I don't think he knows they don't have the ability to occupy. 95% of Russia's military forces are already in Ukraine. Yeah. 95%. 95%. And they still can't gain traction. So if you are going to do a face-saving measure and you want to show you know, your military your might, uh, you would level the country. And, and that's what I'm afraid that will be the next step. And I think he's crazy enough to do that and to, to send a message also to the other Baltic states as well as to Eastern Europe saying, you know, we can do this to you. Yeah. And they have that capability. So, you know, that th- th- that's the difference here with all of this is that you have a nuclear-armed Russia— um, that has something, how much, 4,000 
nuclear weapons? I don't know the exact number, but they have the most. That's a number that I've heard. And the most in the world, they also have these hypersonic missiles. And they have a battle strategy that says if we can't take you by conventional force, we'll drop a tactical nuke on you on the battlefield. I mean, they are one of the few countries that basically comes out and says they will use tactical nukes in a combat situation. And so, yeah, and so that's that's the question. We're not at the point yet uh, that they would be willing to do something drastic with a NATO country because of the United States would be obligated then to enter into this and and in a test, you know, direct to direct with the United States, Russia doesn't have a chance. But if they can cause damage with Ukraine, uh, Moldova is another one, a very tiny country that's not a NATO member that wants to join NATO but isn't. I mean, that's another one that they could just easily take. So there's ways that they can test us, and and we don't have – I mean, it makes it very difficult because we can't really respond without starting war at that point. It was hard during the beginning days of this when you hear the the Ukrainian people are putting up a stiff resistance. What does that actually mean? And I saw an instance where, you know, two Russian tanks are rolling down the street, about 50 citizens, some of them with some, some small firearms, stand in the street, block that. The Russian tanks eventually turn around. Yeah. Well... The Russian tank commander made a decision to not around. to kill those people. And run them over. If he wanted to, he could have gotten to where he needed to go. And here's the problem. I've heard conflicting reports on the damage done by the Ukrainians against the Russians on yes. casualties. The official number that Russia has released, which is now almost a week old at this point, was 495 Russian yes. troops killed. Um, I've heard numbers ranging all the way to 10,000 yeah. that they've been killed by. So we don't know. And we're yeah. still in that fog of war, as you said. We that, don't know the actual numbers. That 11,000 number that the Ukrainians are saying, that, that's insane. Yeah, there's no way there's it's There's no way they're killing 1,000 yeah. soldiers a week. But Russia— I, ha- can, I can believe it's higher than 500, yes. though. And they've killed two Russian generals. Yeah. How does that happen? right. If you're a Russian general, where are you that you got hit by? <laughs> yeah, how? Do, how because does that happen? The point I'm trying to make is Russia can take Ukraine anytime they want. The Molotov cocktails are a great image. The Stinger missiles are awesome. If Russia choose to, they'll bomb you from 40,000 feet and you'll never see the face of your invader. If they choose to, they can take Ukraine whenever they want. It's just a question of how many people are you going to kill? And are you able to deal with, are you willing to deal with the fallout? But one word from Putin, hey, just bring in the high-altitude bombers and in this, this is done. It's done. It's done. And the country can be leveled. Correct. And I think that, you know, these negotiations, which are on again, off again with Russia, I would have put much stock in those. We've, we saw how those went, you know, last year and before the Olympics started, they went nowhere. And keep in mind that just last week, there had been agreement on opening this humanitarian corridor uh, and, and stopping and having it as a no-strike zone. And what happens? You have these people with their luggage and suitcases yeah. that are killed by Russian bombs in the humanitarian corridor. Did you see uh, Putin's... Uh, remedy for that? We'll just open these corridors up to Russia and Belarus. Yeah, I saw. you'll be completely safe if you just want to come to Russia and and Belarus. That that's crazy. That's insane. Oh, so that leads me to another thing which we haven't talked about: Belarus. So this is another example of Putin's expansionism. So Belarus was known as the last dictatorship in Europe after the fall of 
communism because after 1991, they were the only Eastern Bloc country that did a transition into a democracy of some type. They have remained um, almost in like Soviet mode since the end of Soviet communism. But in the last several years, Putin has basically operated uh, as a puppet master with Lushenko, who's their dictator, as Putin's puppet. More and more control, Russian military might. And don't forget that when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, they invaded from the uh, east and south, but they Mm -hmm. also invaded from the north through Belarus. So you not only have – we can, I think, safely say Belarus is a satellite state of Russia for all intents and purposes because they are now. They're not an independent state. So you have that playing into the mix with all of this going on. And Belarus has done a lot to try to destabilize its neighbors. This was an often underreported story. I don't know if we talked about it a couple of months ago on the podcast, but this last fall, if you remember, there was this story about all of these Syrians that were being trying to enter the border with Poland. Do you remember this? I don't remember that, but the Syrians are back in, in this mix where Russia is right. trying to Russians recruit Russians are recruited. And, so, yeah. and, and that isn't happening you know, in a vacuum. You have to remember, Russia filled the, vacu- the void when we left Syria. When we pulled out of Syria back um, you know, in the 2014s and completely uh, during the Trump era, uh, Russians expanded their presence there. So, but so these Syrians, uh, what happened was uh, Belarus actually um, promoted and told Syrians that there would be uh, refugee assistance for them in Poland and in these Eastern European countries like Hungary. And so Belarus actually paid for flights of Syrians, flew them and dropped them off at the border with Poland and created this massive, just untenable uh, immigration wave that Poland had to deal with. And Belarus later admitted that, that, you know, to what they had done. They did that to exact concessions from Poland and from some of these neighbors and to prove a point that they were powerful. So, you know, you have to look at all of this in context. And you can't think for a second Belarus did not do that without Putin's 100%. approval. I mean, it, immigrants have been used as a pawn in war forever. Right. And that's another thing that Putin's doing. He's unleashing another huge wave of immigration across Europe. And he saw what it did to Germany. Well, and you have over a million Ukrainians now that have entered. Two million have tried have left Poland. Wow, yeah. Well, I don't know if they went to. I think two million have left. Have I think left. a million have ended up in Poland. Poland yeah, yeah, naturally, being Poland yeah. right there. So I, I know the vast majority have gone there. I mean, it's the largest uh, wave of immigration, you know, refugee yeah. crisis on and the continent since World a War II. Consequence to it. Yeah. So that many displaced people, absolutely. Zelensky has been the key to this because I'm, I'm pretty sure Putin thought, hey, I can I, I can muscle Zelensky into signing something that I want him to sign or he'll leave the country, which I'll use as, hey, your leader has abandoned you. You have no hope. Let's go ahead and just just sign this piece of paper. We'll, we'll give you a government. Let's get this done. I think that the first big snag in Putin's plan was in the first 48 hours when Zelensky where it was pretty clear he was not going to leave the country right. and he was going to stay and try to rally his people. And I think we underestimated Zelensky personally, and why wouldn't you? He was a comedian with no real political experience who came to power. And I don't think that, I don't think people understood the connection that he had with the Ukrainian people and that how his strength and that him, how his standing up would allow the Ukrainian people to do the same. Right. That's been, I think, the biggest surprise. The leader sets the Putin. example. Yeah, I, I think it would have been a very different response by the Ukrainian population if it wasn't Zelensky rallying them. 
And Zenlitz, we have to remember, too, a crisis like this will either reveal the true character of a leader and reveal that, you know, they're in for themselves and or it will be a uh, character uh, reveal their character in that way or, uh, you know, that they've evolved. And, and many people can evolve into the role and into the office when given the opportunity. And I think that's the case with Zelensky. He had this comedic entertainment background. He wasn't somebody from the political arena. You know, he wasn't taken very seriously by a lot of people. And this was the, you know, preeminent crisis of his lifetime. Yeah. And he stepped up. I, this brings me back to who would, I want to say it was Karzai, but that's not right. Who was the leader of Afghanistan when they fell? When oh, they I fell? knew you were going to say this. Yeah, I wanted the references too, and I'm, I'm blanking out I on I can't the name. think of the person's name, but similar situation. He decided to grab four or five pallets of cash and bug out of the country. Yeah, he, he left. He just, yeah, skedaddled. And I just wonder how differently that could have gone if a Zelensky type of leader would have said, it's time for us to stand on our own feet. You know, if we don't want the Taliban here, there's only one way to get rid of them, and that's every single person in this country has to pick up a gun, and we got to fight these people off. And that's another major difference between Iraq and Ukraine, is Iraq is more of a sectarian country, yeah, Afghanistan? right? I, I'm sorry, Afghanistan. <laughs> they all just merge into one giant shit. Yeah, you know, I almost said shithole. That would be very Trump. Well, yeah, be careful. And not shithole for the country, shithole situation that yes. we've been in. So Afghanistan is very different, and then it's never really. been a united country it's always been sectarian factions yeah so even you know the national army you know didn't have that that whole sense of of loyalty outside of some members so yeah it's very different situation than ukraine which always has had this this pride and and unity but they've needed somebody to come along and and rally them and they have that person and i wish biden would have leaned into more on afghanistan with This government is so corrupt and corruption is so ingrained into the culture, the political culture of the Afghanis. And that hasn't changed in the last decade since we had been there. There's no possibility to form a government. No. It's never going to happen. I think there's no way Putin thought Zelensky would stand up to him this way. There's no no way. He had completely underestimated him. And I would have, I would probably would have made the same calculation. We roll some tanks up near Kiev. We throw a few shells into there. He'll sign whatever we want. I, I got to think that was part of his calculation of why he's going as hard as he's going. Right. And do you, I think, too, now that he's Zelensky has stood up to the situation, he can't. There's no way he can backtrack. Well, and Putin. so there's no way that Putin wins this. And that doesn't mean that we win if you use, you know, win lose t- terminology. But but clearly this has been a disaster for Putin. Russia's economy is going to be decimated. And keep in mind that Putin came to power uh, on the basis of restoring the Russian economy when, you know, there was sky high inflation after the fall of Soviet communism and Russia was in shambles. And so that was how he rose to power. And and now, you know, he's grappling with that, a military adventure that's not going the way he planned. Uh, he hasn't been able to sell this to his own people. I think what's yeah. most remarkable is the, the thousands of Russians who have protested <laughs> this publicly. What's going to happen to those people? Right. They've all been thrown in jail. But but you have to remember the last time the Russians were protesting in numbers like this, you'd have to go back to like 2014. Because protests are not common in Russia because Russia is an authoritarian state and they don't allow you to protest against the government. Yeah. So the fact that many people risked jail time anyway and went out to the streets like they did and still have continued to do so is remarkable. One of the things that we we need to keep in mind is we need to always provide Putin an exit ramp. Yeah. I get it that we 
a lot of the conversation around is we just need to run over there and kick Putin's ass and be done with it. If we're not going to declare war on Russia, we need to approach this in a way that every step we take, Putin has the ability to say, and it ends here. In 1979, China invaded Vietnam. That invasion lasted under four weeks because they quickly learned this is just a shit show we're going to get into. This is a 10-year conflict that the French and the Americans already have showed us what's going to happen. So they did what major powers do when they don't want to fight. They declared victory. They said, we accomplished what we accomplished, and they went home. I could see a scenario where, again, if the West helps create the proper context, Putin could just declare victory and go home. I got those two Russian, um, uh, those new uh, uh, republics, and I protected them from the Nazi Zelensky. He can come up with a narrative that he can spin at home, declare victory, and exit the battlefield. And I think whatever we do moving forward, we've got to all, that has to be on the table. It has to be on the table. I, I, I'm not convinced that he would accept that. I don't think he would either. That's the problem. I, I think, I think we're kind of far past the point of that now. And, and I, and nobody, and I guess this is a scary scenario is none of us really know like his aims completely at this point. No, you know what he would accept or what would constitute a compromise. and, you know, he's been so isolated as we've talked about during the pandemic. And so even in his inner circle, there's very few people who yeah. can read his mind. These 20, so these planes, but let's talk through some, some practical things that are happening and how this could get out of hand very, very quickly. So there's 28 Soviet union style MIGs in Poland. You saw Oh my God, Top Gun came out in 1985. I remember I was a sophomore yeah. and I remember I went on a date with a girlfriend to see this movie. So you were probably what, four or five or something? Well, I was born in 85, so. <laughs> uh, wait, you, you, I walked right you into walked that. You walked right one, into that. slammed the door right in my <laughs> that face. That was my birth year. My point is, these are 28 Soviet Union era, which makes them at least 35 to 40 years old, yeah. MiG jets. These are jets that, as soon as they hit the sky, Russian fifth-generator fighters would probably knock out of the air pretty quickly. To get them to from Poland to Ukraine, they were going to take them. The Polish government wanted to fly these planes from Poland to a NATO-controlled Air Force base in Germany and then take them from Germany to the Ukraine. There's been a lot of reports that America agreed to this. This was going to happen today. Later... This afternoon, the United States came out and said, absolutely not. We are not taking military assets from a NATO base and moving them directly into Ukraine. That's how wars get declared. And I think that's the right thing for the U.S. to do. My point here in telling that story is there's like six layers to that story you have to peel apart. There are only 28 jets. Does that make any difference? Yeah. The jets are 40 years old. Do they have any chance to go up against fifth-generation Soviet fighters? Can the, the Ukrainian pilots even fly these things? Is this all of their all air force? Yeah. If they give this up, how do you backfill that? Right. This, is, this is my point in that right now in the, the energy that America is feeling to support the Ukraine people – and to get involved in this scenario to help them, there's a lot of things that we could do that sound safe and rational that one misstep or one kind of misinterpretation of what we're doing can lead to an all-out war. Yeah. And we've got to be very, very careful with that right now. 
do you do you think America should should get involved? Do you think we should put boots on the ground in Ukraine? I, I don't. I mean, I don't think we should put boots on the ground. I think we could, we should do everything we can from a supportive effort, uh, absent of direct involvement. Uh, you know, in in terms of the situation, just because we we don't know Putin's mind and what he's willing to do in retaliation, and so I think we have to be very cautious about what we do. And it's just, yeah, there there are no easy answers no. to this at all. This no fly zone—that's a declaration of war. Yeah. When you declare no fly zone, I, I watched some YouTube video on this. The first thing you typically do is you take out all of the land-based air defense systems. Anything that can shoot a plane down from the ground, that's the first thing you take out. So we would have to hit military targets in Russia, Belarus, and I think Turkestan in order to accomplish that. That's World War III. Yeah. We're, we're done. If, if, if we say we want to own the skies over Ukraine— we have to directly attack Russia. I don't think we no, should. No, that's not that, going to happen. Yeah. That's a step a little bit too far. What, what can we do for the Ukrainian people? I mean, in practical terms, is there anything other to do than what we're all, we've already done? As far as the government response? I, yeah. I mean, I, as far as anything, military response, economic response, I don't, I don't know what else I mean, is I think we took the, the, the final step today by, uh, you know, not exporting <laughs> or importing Russian oil, um, which is only 3% of our oil consumption, but it's something, and it's, it sends a message. I think what's even uh, greater impact there is you have the European Union, which is going to gradually wean itself off of Russian oil, and the UK announced that they will be completely off of Russian oil by the end of the year. Are they? Are they? I've heard this so many times. How many times have you heard dependency on well, foreign oil we have to end? Well, yeah, but I mean, I think the present situation, I think, for Europe changes it quite a bit. It I just mean, that's... becomes real simple. Germany gets almost all of its fuel from this big tube that comes from Russia. Yeah. If that tube shuts off, where does the next tube appear? Because they shut down all their nuclear power plants. Which was a big mistake which in hindsight. Which was a huge yeah. mistake. So, and the green energy revolution is not ready yet. No. So Now, Germany has talked about uh, going back on that nuclear shutdown decision. So I, I think that they, sh- yeah, they, they need to revisit that. I thought resource wars were done. I thought fighting over oil and gas and natural resources was something, of you know, so 20th yeah. century, and we, we wouldn't do that. It feels like we're gearing up for that again, and that if we would actually take a military action against Russia— it would have to be for more than just defending the Ukrainian people. There's got to be something else to to poke us into that. Well, it would need to be, I mean, I think, imminent threat beyond Ukraine into a member of the NATO alliance, uh, uh, you know, uh, Poland or sure. one of the, you know, former Eastern Bloc countries that makes up the NATO alliance. I mean, that's a definitive, you I, know. I asked somebody this the other day, and I want to hear your answer to this. Would we defend Latvia? Would we defend Estonia? Would we put American boys in body bags over those countries? Sure, they're NATO countries. Article 5 applies. I, I, I get that. But would we? I mean I, mm. I, I mean, I think we're compelled to defend them. Now, again, I don't know. I think you'd be hard-pressed to get support for boots on the ground, land war, I think. Uh-huh. So the question would be you would— 
go by error. I'll just I'll do this. So um, Russia pulls into Estonia. Do we declare war on Russia? Do, will, will, will we go to war to defend some of those small Eastern European nations? Will we tolerate young men, American men, dying in Eastern Europe over Estonia, Latvia, Moldova? I, I don't know. And I'm coming off four years of Trump in yeah. America first. Right. And his whole recalibration to what our role should be in the world. Do you think we would just – I don't know. I think – I literally think it's 50-50 if we do it. But then, I mean, it makes the whole idea of the NATO alliance null and void. I mean, if we're – I mean, that's the whole point yeah. that, you know, you have – that the alliance is enlarged and you have members join. It's because of that security guarantee. And if there is no security guarantee, then why even have it? I, I think that the whole idea and premise collapses, and I think it makes it much more difficult in the future, particularly because we're entering this new age where the authoritarian countries are banding together mm-hmm. – uh, against the democratic countries. I don't think it can be lost that, you know, China and Russia did this show of strength, you know, at the Olympics with, you know, saying this new partnership between them, China had advanced knowledge of the invasion of Ukraine, told Russia to hold off until after the Olympics. All of this plays into that. And you also have to realize that don't think that China is watching what's happening and taking notes for Taiwan. And it would be the same thing if China invades Taiwan, do we get involved in a war with China? I think China's most interesting to see what these sanctions do to the Russian economy. Yeah. Because I, I, think, I think China knows we have very little tolerance right now to put boots on the ground in Taiwan. I, I don't think we would do that. But we would – do any of these sanctions actually have the impact on Russia that we want them to have? Where basically it gets so bad economically – the Russian people demand that they pull out of Ukraine. I'm, I'm assuming that's what the sanctions are designed to do. That's the intent. That and to have uh, an internal revolt by Putin's inner circle and his yeah. oligarchs to depose him and replace him. Well, and I think there's no question they're going to have an enormous impact. I mean, we're already seeing it in terms of you know what little has we're getting out of the country. But and that's because unlike what we've done before, you know, it, this is different than the sanctions against Iran yeah. or against North Korea. Deeper. We threw the whole kitchen sink yeah. of everything we had at our disposal at them to the point that we're even I mean, we're hurting ourselves somewhat. And we're seeing that with the rising cost of gasoline. But we are intentionally saying we are taking these drastic steps because we're going to leave nothing on the table. So we get to. October, September, midterms right around the corner. Russia is still in Ukraine. The fighting's still going on. We've sanctioned the shit out of them. They're still fighting. Gas is 550. Who's got the political will to continue? Uh, that's a good question. And then I don't know, like, the, the question is, like, for Biden personally, what does his approval rate sure. look like then? Gas prices and inflation are going to enter into that. But will there be some offsetting with the rallying behind a wartime president? I don't know. Are we now tying the future of the president to the ga- for the price of gas? Is that what politics has devolved to? Brandon, are you telling me – well, I, I know the answer to my own question. But are you telling me the American people are so gullible that they don't understand how an oil market works and this is supply and demand? Yes. And that the supply during yes. the pandemic – 
there was no demand for yes. it. So it uh, yeah, that I am telling you that because I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people. Okay, this is a good uh, just kind of side talk. People who bring up, well, if we would have Keystone Pipeline, <laughs> let, let's favorite. remind people that the Keystone Pipeline was a Canadian-owned project yeah. that uh, that was uh, and was going to take years to build. That's not something that happens overnight, so no. that wouldn't even be complete yet. And you know, we would get very little of that oil. It would basically be up to Canada and the company to decide who to sell it to. Number one. Also, this whole idea—you know—we were energy—you know—we were energy independent under Trump, and now we're no, no longer. Well, that's not true either. Yeah. People conflate energy independent and oil independent. Correct. We have been energy independent since about 2014, which means if you combine all of our different energy sources, uh, so oil, uh, natural gas, coal, electric, renewables, together combined, we are independent, energy independent. We have never been oil independent, Correct. ever. Ever since we've used gasoline to power our vehicles, we have never, ever been oil independent. We are a net importer of crude oil, which means we um, don't uh, make enough of it on our own and uh, to be able to provide for ourselves. We have to import some in. Now, we are a net exporter of petroleum products, yes. which includes gasoline. Yeah. So we import the crude oil, which we use to make gasoline, and then we net import more of those petroleum products, including finished gasoline. Yeah. That's the difference, though, and people don't I saw in 20, read between the in lines. In 2019 was the biggest year that we were, we were energy independent, right? And we still, I think we, 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 we imported 7 million barrels of oil a day. Yeah. So at the height of where we were, we were exporting more, like to your point, more energy than we were taking in. In the part we were taking in, we're still millions of barrels in oil every day. And we've never, like to your point, been completely uh, independent of needing foreign foreign oil. Right. Do you think going to Venezuela is the, the, the answer to this? Well, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, you know, some of these other countries, but I don't think we we have a choice. I, I think it, it, with where we are now, it's the realist uh, option. I mean, it's being a realist, right? And it's being smart. I mean, you have to look at what you can do to offset the uh, supply issue. So, you know, that's that's where we're at. And so, and if it offsets that while still putting pressure and scrutiny on Russia, then, you know, and also I think there's the political calculation, right? Because yeah. if we can offset prices and, and there isn't that angst by the American people, um, there's going to be more uh, patience in terms of what we do with Ukraine. There's going to be less of a, uh, just, yeah complete opposition. Brandon, as a 52-year-old American, there are two things that I demand. One is cheap electronics and cheap (laughs) gasoline. It's been that way my whole life. Yeah. If you wanted the latest electronics, you just went and got it. They've always been affordable. Whatever gadget you wanted was there. Gas has always been I've I've never had to budget for fuel, never had to make a decision where I'm driving or what transportation I'm taking because the cost of of gasoline. As Americans, we are really used to getting cheap, dirty things from other countries. We are. Things that we don't want to make ourselves because they would cost too much if we made them here or things that are too dirty for us to deal ourselves. We want other people in other countries to do for us. And when you do that, you have to turn an eye to what those other countries do. We don't give a shit about the Uyghurs in China. Every piece of electronics I have comes from China. We're not screwing that up. 
is this just to the point where we just have to take the mature approach? Hey, folks, the green energy revolution is decades away. Yeah. We are not going to green energy our way that out of this happen overnight, right no. now. We have to have a stopgap measure for fossil fuels. So, America, just make the choice. You want to well, do it here? You want to do it over there? That's what it comes down to. It's and, that simple. And, and if you do it over there... There's a lot of stuff that comes with that. If you yeah. do it here, there's a whole separate things that come with it. But we just have to make a choice. What do you want? Do you want, you know, cheap energy, cheap electronics while supporting our adversaries abroad um, sure. in the long run? Or are you willing to, you know, have a little bit of economic pain relative, let's be honest, compared to what, you know, many in the world are experiencing? Are you willing to not get the latest Android phone that comes out? Brandon, to take a tougher stance against China. That's a, that's a good way to frame it, yeah. I don't know if I'd answer that question, yes. You mean the iPhone, like, whatever, is it going to pop up <laughs> here? I've got to wait for it? Or it's going to be three times as much, so I can't instantly, automatically get that upgrade just because I want it? There's no real practical purpose for it. There's no way America, but that's not America. That's not what we grew up with. Or the, the me, me, me. I want everything know. cheap. Right now, when I want it, how I want it. Instantaneous and, gratification. And I don't give a shit who has to be, I don't give a shit over the pain anybody went through to make it. As long as I get it and I get it cheaply. That's America. Yeah. It's been, we've been this for decades. We've turned into these monstrous consumers that just consume anything that comes from these countries, and we don't think there's ever going to be a price. To a pay repercussion, for that. yeah, and and we've taken it for granted, right? We just expect that when sure. much of the rest of the world doesn't no. have, you know, the the cheap. Uh, and the lifestyle that we have, I mean, and being able to get products as cheaply as we can. We just assume that it's always been that way and it will be that way, but the, that's not the, the case. The American consumer is a gigantic toddler that just wants everything they want, when they want it, at the price they want it, and we don't care what has to happen to get it to me. If you're telling me kids in Asia are being exploited to make my phone, uh, I'm, I'm sad about that, but I, I still want to use my phone. Right, and you're the, sad about it for about a minute, and then it's and the American people we're not good at making these moral decisions and these moral judgments. No, I mean there there are slaughters going on around the world equal to what's happening in Ukraine that we just don't give a shit about. Saudi Arabia has been pulling a genocide on Yemen for years. Remember Aleppo? Remember the picture, yeah. that horrible picture of that kid covered in dust that got bombed, crying that that was supposed that didn't do shit. I, I just I just don't know what. What is the American response to this? I just don't know anymore. Because $5, $5 a gallon gas is politically not sustainable. No. It's not, it's, it, it can't. We won't tolerate that. So what are we going to do? So the question is how long we tolerate it, what, kind of, uh, what impact it makes within that time frame. And so it all comes down to, to time, right? And, and I think it remains to be seen. The American people have had it relatively easy they haven't been tested like this Not in a while. i mean if you go back you'd have to go back to you know world war ii when americans actually had to you know ration and you know and and do things you know for the war effort uh, you know we they we haven't asked americans to do anything no. like that and I've never, I've never understood if we're gonna spend like sparta we have to act like sparta yeah. Why are we spending more than the 26 countries behind us or whatever it is on the military if we're not going to use it in this way? I mean, soft power doesn't exist anymore. 
just exerting, just, just because we have it, we can't exert that power as easily as we could around the world by saying, we're going to send the U.S. military. If we're going to continue to do this, shouldn't we use it? Right. If we're going to be Sparta, shouldn't we act like Spartans? I don't, I don't, I think we, this is one of these boxes we get ourselves in where we're going to use the power of the military and this soft power to get our way that never seems to work out. And I don't know, the only way forward it seems for us is we're going to have to take some military action. I don't see how we're not. Yeah. So you think that's inevitable? I don't see how it's, it it has to be. Are we going to sit and watch him level Kiev? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we'd have the stomach to do that. No, I think no. so. Uh, and I have a feeling once Pooty gets that convoy unstuck or whatever the shit's wrong with that, or they get a gas or whatever the hell, at some point Putin's just going to say, "I don't give a shit. I'm tired of this high altitude bombing. Let's be done." And I think that's where we're going to really have to have to make a decision. But I don't see anything coming that says we won't hit that 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 spot yeah there's no indication that putin is letting it up or reversing course at all so that's the problem and so it's like what is the end game here where do we and and again it goes all the way back to your off-ramp discussion i agree i think we need to have those options and in our back pocket be presented but i i just have no confidence that he'd be willing to take those i just i don't there's no. no indication from his public statement so far that he's willing to budge. I mean, the language, the way his tone, what he uses, the threats that he's made very ominously against the Western world. Yeah. I just. And when people, it's a very common phrase that you hear well, this is Putin war. This is Putin's war, not the Russian people's war. Are you sure? How, how do we know that? Have we asked anybody? Are we sure Russia isn't down with this? I don't know. Well, and, and that's the thing. Right with an autocratic country, it is hard to know. It's not like there's official polling done of Russians that, that's yeah. credible or believable. I mean, the the one you would think would be the official poll would be the election results. And we know those are rigged. <laughs> I mean, Putin winning with 80% of the vote, that's yeah. not— I, He has one opponent—had one political opponent only who is now jailed and yeah. has been jailed for a long time, Alexis Navalny. And so the question is, why aren't there more— outspoken opponents because they'll get arrested and they'll be killed. So it, it, you don't know. It's difficult to say. We do know there's at least some evidence that there are Russians that have been somehow brainwashed by the propaganda campaign to believing that this is a limited military oper- special military yeah. operation the, and that the, no civilians have been targeted because there are Ukrainians who are talking to relatives in Russia who are just cannot bring themselves to believe what is yeah. happening. But then we do know that there have been, you know, upwards of over 10,000 now who have been arrested for protesting and have been very vocal saying this war is illegal. But we don't know if that reflects anywhere near a majority or if that's a small number. We, we don't know. Putin dies in his sleep tonight. Does the bombing stop? I well, I think there's there is a good chance it does. I the interesting thing about Putin is that even his inner circle, there's a lot of people that are afraid to cross him. There's yeah. people that are unwilling to tell him what he doesn't want to hear. And I think there, there's evidence too that even some of his top military brass were caught off guard by this whole endeavor, and so they're executing. But there isn't an indication that they necessarily agree with them. So I think that could change the calculus. I mean, a lot of this is a man of one, you know, who is doing what he wants to do and telling people to follow. So, um, yeah, I think there's a good chance. I don't know if it's 50-50, something like that. I think my, um, 
my view on this whole situation has been colored tremendously by the Trump presidency. And one, for seeing how I never thought America would follow a Trump. I always thought he would just be a joke here. And he came to power. And in some ways, he still controls a a major political party. He does, yeah. I I didn't think it was possible for one authoritarian to throw a country into the dumper like Putin has done over Ukraine. I thought people would there – there's too much information being distributed. There's too many people in the know. There's too much understanding of what this means, and there's be too many consequences to it. Obviously, that's not the case. But do you think there's any belief behind what John Bolton said was that what Putin really wanted was for Trump to win re-election, and he, he thought Trump would pull us out of NATO? Oh, I do believe that. I do. I kind of believe I, that, too. I, I kind of believe that. Yeah, I, I think that's the the reason we did see more of this going on. Now, behind the scenes, there was uh, stealth moves you know, into Ukraine, continuing to build up forces at the border when Trump was president. But we were on this hiatus because you have to remember that Trump basically gave Putin what he wanted. He gave him the credibility on the national stage. You know, Trump iterated that, you know, Crimea was part of Russia and should have never been independent. He, he they speak adopted Russian, Brandon. Trump <laughs> even said it. They speak Russian. What right. I mean, he, yeah, he adopted Putin's complete talk track on all of these issues. I mean, he called and, you know, tried to withhold military aid to Ukraine to yeah. get Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden. I mean, that was the reason for the first impeachment for people that forgot. I mean, it was threatening um, an ally, a Democratic ally, withholding yeah. funding. So he was, you know, doing what Putin wanted. And and the moves that he made against NATO and the, the constant um, just antagonism towards NATO, absolutely. I'm sure that Putin thought that with the second Trump term, he could get what he wanted. And so that was... That was the reasoning, and so I don't think it's coincidence that you know he accelerated his plans after Biden won because he no longer had yeah. the mouthpiece in the White House to give him that legitimacy. So there's been this weird phenomenon where some members of the GOP in the beginning of this were defending Putin, and this has been a, a trend among certain veins in the GOP to gravitate towards authoritarian style strongmen. Strongmen is that. Is that just an easy way to get clicks and viewers for a pundit or being still loosely associated with the GOP? What, where does that come from? What, what would take somebody and say, I'm going to take the authoritarian side on this? So I, I think it goes back to uh, culture war issues, right? Yeah. So, for example, Tucker Carlson adopted this glowing and a- – uh, very glowing admiration for Hungary's president. And Hungary has been moving into an authoritarian direction over the last several years in terms of uh, persecuting the free press, uh, the judiciary system, corruption. And there's it's not a coincidence that Tucker Carlson went over there and spoke and met yeah. with the president, that CPAC had their first international gathering over in Hungary. But I think it's all part of this. They see some of these authoritarian countries as strong, but also as uh, on the cultural values. They're pro-tradition. You had Bannon with um, – I forget who it was on his podcast. This was right when Russia was invading. 
Uh, oh, uh, it might have been Mike Flynn. But he was the one who said Putin's anti-LBGT and anti-wokeness, and right. that's why he's an effective leader. That, right. And he's and built a culture that, that It was the, the culture wars, yeah. They don't allow transgender you know, kids to use women's bathrooms. So I think that plays into it. It's that these countries are strong, that they have the right mindset, that, you know, they're, that they're doing what they should be doing, and it's following in Trump's footsteps. So there has been a very noticeable evolution uh, because you go back – um, not that long ago, and the idea that anybody in the Republican Party would be supporting Putin would be anathema. I mean, you just have to go back to 2012 when Romney said that Russia was our greatest geopolitical threat, and you had Obama, you know, mocking him, saying, you know, 1980s called, they want the foreign <laughs> policy back. It was a great line at the time. Right. But, but and, and in retrospect, I mean, Romney was right. And also, the Republican Party doesn't have a strong foreign policy vision. No. So no. they don't even – there is no coherent. You have the Congress, Republicans in Congress now divided between those that think Biden should do more and those that think he should do nothing and that we have no obligation to be there. There is no unified yeah. so stance. I keep looking at my phone making horrible faces. I just got Uh-oh. an alert from Fox News that the United States is moving two Patriot surface-to-air missile units into Poland. Oh, wow. Those are there to shoot down Russian planes. That's that's an escalation. If we move surface-to-air units into Poland, one, there's a good chance Russia tries to hit those those installations. Or two, we shoot down Russian aircraft. To me, that's another step towards towards direct conflict with with, with Russia. Yeah. Because those... I think one of the things, too, is you're, you're seeing the difference between when America goes to war. When America goes to war, we love showing pictures of how precise our bombs are and how precise our attacks are. When we don't hit a target, it's not because we missed. It's because we got bad intel and picked a wrong target. Russia, they don't care. They're, they're just bombing in mass at this point. And this gets to us putting missiles in Poland really ratchets up the potential of a miscommunication or a mistake or something leading to a point of escalation. Do, do you see, do, did you get the same alert? Um, I did not. I was, I was looking just to see on CNN and they're not reporting that well, yet. So I don't know. So I got that alert from Fox. I hit on the story and it didn't go to the story linked oh. to things. So maybe, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe it was a mistake and it's been retracted. I, I think we're going to do, I think we're going to do that. We have to. If, if, yeah. To your point, if they're saying here's a here's a, a a safe zone to evacuate, and then they're bombing that route, we just can't allow that to happen. Now, I, I got a bad bad feeling that we're we're in for some really bad bad stuff ahead. Because yeah. if I'm Russia and I've gone this far and I'm willing to go this far, what's the off ramp? And if you're putting missiles in Poland that can knock my planes out of the air. I can't, I can't allow that. Yeah. I can't let that happen. And I think the United States was right with the, the MIGs in Poland that that's a bridge too far. Right. And again, I think this is a response to saying, Hey, 28, 40 year old MIGs ain't going to do shit, but these Patriot anti air air missiles, they can do a lot. So in some ways, this is almost like an escalation, even from the fighters that we're bringing American technology into Poland in with the intent of, the only reason to put those missiles there is to shoot them, right? I mean, they're not going to sit there and sit. So, I don't know. 
this seems like we're, we're, we're marching down a path that only leads to one to to spot. Escalation and confrontation. Brandon, what do you think of the theory of we never really solved the Soviet issue? Well, we didn't. And you have to remember that when the wall fell and you had virtually all of these former Eastern Bloc countries transitioning to free markets into market-based economies into democracies, Russia never really did that. They flirted with it a little bit. A, but a not little. A lot. But you have to remember Russia has never been a democracy, a functioning no. democracy in its history, and they never really embraced it. So, yes, they had their first election with Boris Yeltsin, and then Putin took the but reins after that, but they've Yeltsin never had the institutions. Putin, too. Right. So, Putin came into power not through an election, through an no. appointment. And do you remember the event that happened, which people refer to as a false flag event now? Something – was it something with Yeltsin? With Yel- what? No, I don't. So um, immediately after uh, Putin was appointed and became president, uh, or I think it was, it was before the next election, the months leading up to the next election, there were these bombings of some residential – buildings in downtown Moscow. And uh, there were a couple hundred people that were killed in these bombings. Uh, Putin immediately blamed the Chechens. And so that's what started the war with Chechnya. And the Chechen rebels became the target, and he established himself as his wartime president. Um, He suspended, he declared martial law in Chechnya. Um, You know, the war began there. But there was a lot of suspicious activity around this because there wasn't the evidence to support those bombings <laughs> were by Chechens. In fact, there was evidence to support that somebody internal within the government set these bombings off, that these were done as a pretense, not unlike, you know, the bombing of the Reichstag, you know, during, uh, uh, by Hitler in 19, uh, what was that? 1933. Yeah. So I'm trying to, I get the story on Fox. Okay. Yeah, there it goes. The U.S. is sending two Patriot batteries to Poland at the request of the Polish government in a move designed to bolster the country's defense amid ongoing tension in Russia. So Patriot batteries, I thought those were surface-to-air missiles and that they were there really to shoot down planes. If that's what that is, (laughs) that's an invitation to Russia at this point. Yeah, I see I'm looking at this. Um, and all I see is the articles about U.S. saying Poland's jet offer is not tenable. Yeah. Um, Pentagon says Polish uh, effort to transfer jets, not ready. Poland ready to place at disposal of U.S. Or this could be, hey, Poland, if Putin's feeling really froggy and once he's done whatever he's going to do in Ukraine, he may turn towards you. Maybe this is a a, a defensive mechanism to 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 offset that but i guess i keep going with in a war as chaotic as things are the more weapons the more people the more systems you add every time you put another piece on the board you're just amplifying the opportunity for a mistake to be made or a misinterpretation to happen that leads to an escalation History is full of this. Somebody does something that somebody interprets another way, and suddenly we're, we're shooting at each other. Right. And us, re, us putting American anti-aircraft missiles in Poland, I think that falls into that. It opens up a whole category. new phase, yeah. God, what if Russia hit one of those, those installations? Uh, I mean, we, we declare would, war on Russia. We would we? have to, yeah, We'd absolutely. To. There's no way. Uh, 
Yeah, and, and Poland, you know, and, and I don't like to, to compare countries that way, but but Poland is not Ukraine and Poland is not Latvia. I mean— Poland yeah. will—yeah. You think the Ukrainians will fight, the Polands will really get you. Yeah. Because Poland's been conquered so many times. Their history—I mean, Pol- conquering Poland has been the linchpin to taking Eastern Europe on multiple occasions. It, it has been. And, and, and now—and I mean, it was one of the countries that transitioned very well after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's the second largest economy in Europe after Germany now. Yeah. And, you know, it's the, the satellite headquarters for many multinational corporations are there. Like, it, But it, it has a stronger military now, very robust, um, and we have a lot of NATO troops already there. We started putting NATO yeah. troops in— years ago how strong could its military be if their air force is 28 40 year old migs yeah i yeah i, mean, I don't that, know i mean a fifth generation f-22 would tear through those like they weren't even there I, I think one of the things that's interesting too in this is we're seeing how overall corruption impacts the ability of your military to perform I mean, there's no doubt that the bureaucracy and the corruption of the Russian government is hindering their military's performance on the field. Oh, completely. And that if this were the American or the British or the French or any other NATO force they were going against, they probably would have been wiped off the field by now. Yeah. Because that 40-mile that column, we, we'd destroy that in a minute. I mean, a couple of drones could take that thing out. So I, part of this is... If the Russians have stepped into a hornet's nest, can we allow them to sink deeper and then use that to our advantage? The only cynicism to that is how many Ukrainians do you want to sacrifice for that to happen? How many Ukrainians have to die until we feel Russia's in in a weakened enough state for us to step in and finish them off, if that's the strategy? Or just tell me, how, how many Ukrainians does, does Putin have to kill until we get serious about an off-ramp? I don't, right. I don't know. I don't know. I'll, yeah, tough questions to answer. You know, really was looking forward to maybe a good summer. <laughs> was really looking forward to, we're officially done with the pandemic. Right. Everything feels normal again. I mean, once the Dibs decided the State of the Union could go, I mean, it, it's over at that point, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it needs to be over. It does. I, I we're get at that, that point. We have vaccines. We're, you know, it's, it's peaked. We right. have ways to If you to don't want to take the COVID vaccine, pill. don't take it. it. It just is what what it is. Yeah. But that plan... I have a feeling is not going to happen. It feels like we're in for maybe the long haul on this. If even the long haul is just sitting and watching Russia. Yeah, because there's something psychological about that. Like it feels, I I mean, and, and you know, we, we don't want to get involved in protracted war, but it also feels just awful and nerve-wracking watching people getting slaughtered on yeah. TV day in, day out. And it's like, okay, you know, we're just watching it in real time. That's also— This is a really bad time for America not to know who she is. Yeah. It's a really bad time for us to be as wishy-washy and as schizophrenic as we are. And it feels unsettling a little bit. I feel like as an American, when these situations pop up, I should know what we stand for. I should know what we're going to do. I should know what the right course of action is. And I should see Americans Americans and the American government taking it. I don't know. Is that, is that what we're doing? What would the American response be? Hmm. I mean, once upon a time, we would have a more unified response yeah. than what we have now. But we're so divided as a people, and it's just – it's. It's impossible to have any type of Have unity. you replaced your Instagram of profile picture with the Ukrainian flag? 
I have not. I've added. Brady, you just don't support the Ukrainian people, do you? <laughs> I, I did add it to my Facebook profile. Okay. So I all right, you're you're ahead of I, me. I'm, then. I'm sorry. You're, yeah. you're in. I'm always amazed at how Americans. What wars we gravitate to? What wars we we don't? I, I do. I do think it's interesting. It's a sign too of how technology can be harnessed in the moment. Um, it's encouraging to see all of the Americans that are you know, doing Airbnb stays to just oh, hand yeah. over that money to the Ukrainians, yeah. which is kind of cool. And there's actually a special fund that's been set up by the National Bank of Ukraine where you can donate directly to the Ukrainian military any amount you want be online via their app. I mean, Americans, we love a great war. And what makes a great war to us is when there's a clear-cut villain. Yeah. This has it. There's a clear right and wrong. We've got that. We've got that. And the people that are being victimized by it, the majority of Americans identify with. We've yeah. got that. The, All those the, essential components. If I'm Putin, yeah. this is my biggest fear. You throw the American people a war that they can understand and they can get behind, you've got a problem on your hands. And I just wonder how long does he want to push this? Does he have a specific objective in mind that once he reaches, he would be willing to give this up? Right. I don't, I don't know if we know if there's an answer to that. Brandon, let's end on just one thing positive, one thing fun. Tell me one thing to give me hope for... <laughs> for that the summer is going to be good and it's not going to be a repeat of well of this i tell you it's not gonna be baseball because uh, i muck. Yes. that that is really driving me God, crazy because i've been so off. excited for the start of baseball God, season yeah. after the last two years and for this like i, I just want to like so being a baseball <laughs> fan is like having an alcoholic spouse <laughs> you're just watching somebody kill themselves slowly over time for nothing, for something they can't explain what's wrong. And, and what's wrong with baseball right now that they put the season in jeopardy? Yeah. I can't think of a single and, thing. And why were they not making these negotiations? Why did they bring in like a mediator, an arbitrator earlier? Like, I mean, we're last minute now and there's gridlock. I mean, really? The, like, only, on. the only thing that this that the baseball work stoppage has provided is to have a conversation with my son about in the real world, Adults don't do anything until we absolutely have to. Because he asked the same question. He's like, this is stupid. It's not like you don't know when the season's coming. Right. It's not like you don't know we're not seeing eye to eye. I'm like, I can't explain it to you. I don't know why it is. But the adult world only moves when it absolutely has has to. to. And it's also a learning lesson for my son that when two people or two groups of people have a core disagreement about money – it's really hard to find common ground because if I feel you're taking from me and you feel I'm taking from you, it's hard to find some common ground to to resolve that issue. But I agree with you. Baseball is just trying to kill itself at this point. Uh, It's so frustrating. And I was looking forward to baseball games this summer so much. If we lose half a season, baseball's done. It's already dying (sighs) a slow death now. And my son kind of just got into baseball. Yeah. So I was looking forward to, okay, see, I've been telling you, you can, and now they're just going to shoot themselves right in the foot. For what, I still haven't heard the reason. I still don't know why they're striking. Is it, I think it's because high-end players make too much money and they want to find a way to raise everybody's set. It's something like that. Yeah. There's there's a lower end payers that want more money. Yeah. It's it's, it's a money issue, but I will say, so one thing that I find is encouraging. So last week, weekend, I was in Washington, D.C. for this Principles First Summit. That's right. You went to the the accountability conference. So, uh, yeah. So Principles First. So it was put on by uh, Charlie Sykes and the, the, you know, the whole crew behind, you know, kind of anti-Trump crew. And they had panel sessions on different topics. They had a really good one on 
liberalism, illiberalism, um, and conservatism yeah. and threats to the West. Uh, and I was really impressed. It was also a small, smaller group. It was about, you know, between like 185 to 225 people. Yeah. So, so you could talk with folks yeah. and actually have a conversation. Oh yeah. I mean, did as, you get to talk to Charlie Sykes? I did. And I, I actually, he, he was, he was great. Yeah. Love um, and then I talked to him a little bit more cause we went for lunch at this taco place just outside the convention he hall. He yeah. called Tucker Carlson a feckless twat on his podcast this week. I saw that. Yeah. It was the greatest. I'm like, yep, that that's the phrase that describes Tucker Carlson. Oh yeah. To a, to a T. Uh, Liz Cheney was there. Kinzinger was there. I saw yep. Um, I met Harry Dunn, who was one of the Capitol Police officers that, okay. that fought off the insurrectionists, um, went out to a cigar bar with him in a group and chatted and just drank and smoked cigars. Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, Tom Nichols was there. Great yeah. mind. Yeah, I um, actually chatted with him about geopolitics in the hall. Was Tim Miller there? Um, Tim Miller was not there. I don't know okay. why. Like, So he did not make it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, overall, um, a great group of people. I'm trying to remember who else was there. There were a lot of people there. I mean, the panels were phenomenal. I mean, what do, we'll just call this the sane Republican convention. Yeah. What's their, what's their move forward strategy? Or is it just like, guys, we're just all wandering around the woods, just waiting for a sign. It, so they, they had a, a path or are they still looking for it? So they had a whole panel on that. And so this panel was moderated by Sarah Longwell, who's yeah. from the Republican accountability project. And it included miles Taylor, you know, who served mm-hmm. in the Trump administration and included uh, former congressional representative, Barbara Comstock from Virginia, who was a more mainstream Republican who got defeated in her reelection. Uh, the uh, uh, Illinois former Illinois congressman who got elected in the Tea Party wave, Walsh. yes, Joe Walsh, uh, and so there was this bantering about about what the solution was, and they all had different ideas, ranging from start a new party to just support Democrats when possible and good Republicans and divide and conquer to trying to work within the Republican Party. So obviously, there's more talk on that, but the one common agreement they said is we need electoral reform. We yeah. need to support. And if there's cases or places where you can't, it's untenable to support ranked choice voting, if that doesn't work, support nonpartisan blanket primaries. Yeah. You know, Texas, in their primary system, you have to get 50% to avoid a runoff. Even something as simple as that is a mechanism to introduce a little bit more moderation into the process and keep the extreme people out. And there's actually an initiative. I met these people from Arkansas who said, yeah, ranked choice voting was a non-starter in Arkansas because it's too complex and our yeah. voters don't have the appetite you for it. You never could explain that in Arkansas. So, and st- yes, I'm taking a swipe directly at Arkansas. Yeah. Well, and they kind of did too, and they're from yeah. Arkansas, so you're fine there. Yeah. But they even said, they're like, so we're supporting nonpartisan blanket primaries because it's easy to understand, can explain it, and they're doing a referendum to get it on the ballot this November. Uh, so so you, I think it has to be a state-by-state thing. Find what makes the most sense for the state. But all of those have the ability to move the dial. I mean, look at Alaska when, you know, their electoral reform, if Lisa Murkowski wins re-election, it's going to be solely because, you know, she's going to be running in that blanket yeah. primary with everybody and then will be one of the two that makes it to the general. Like that's... What was, what was the talk about how to bring accountability back into politics? So there was a, I mean, there were a couple of panels on that. There was one specifically, you know, completely on accountability and what you would do there was from you know media accountability you know what you do with the media to make sure to hold candidates to the fire uh there was the um getting the party apparatus and how you keep the the party 
people accountable yeah. in terms of what they say and put out there, particularly because they have a tendency to just put out inflammatory sure. stuff to rile people up. And uh, and then there was also government accountability. So there was a lot of emphasis on changing laws, on being able to introduce a congressional reform package that would uh, basically I- identify a series of steps that would need to be taken if you serve in the executive branch, mm-hmm. um, reducing conflict of interest, uh, being able to um, reduce, prevent um, uh, members of the executive branch as well as members of Congress and their spouses from um, owning stock in companies that they would regulate or come before them. Because that that's be a no-brainer. And we, we still have that. Like, there's no law. They're allowed to do that. That's insider trading. We've banned insider trading in the private sector, but it's allowed in the public sector. How do you think Pelosi got $300 billion or whatever she's worth? Right. Yeah. And so many of them do it. So it's 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 awful. But but there's a lot of talk about how uh, – and then on the local level, how to insulate Secretary of State's offices yeah. and um, ele- local uh, election offices from this growing partisan involvement and in trying to, to take over. And uh, Secretary of State races are pivotal. Uh, but also what you can do, particularly starting with if you have a hostile legislature that isn't going to try to keep – you know, these election offices from being independent, uh, initiate a referendum process yeah. to get something on the ballot to do it, uh, because that is also what's at stake. And that's often overlooked is what's happening at the state and local level uh, with trying to impugn the integrity of these local offices. Yeah. It, it just does my heart good to know at least there's a group of people out there talking about they this. are. And, and the great thing is, so the takeaway is, you know, they're going to have another one of these, but they're also doing local meetups. So there's a group that's organizing one for the Kansas City area Sweet. Um, all over the place. So it's take these ideas home find a way to make them palatable and find out what works in your area and then continue working. Yeah. And that's Republican conservative federalism 101. Oh, completely. Take the idea, take it back to the local people, figure out what works, implement it. And let me just say the attendees, unlike, you know, CPAC and the, the white nationalist, uh, APAC conference or whatever it was called. Tended by uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Right. Like, there was a cross-section of people that attended this. There were conservatives who were anti-Trump, who were mainstream conservatives. There were dyed-in-the-wool moderate centrists. There were independents, Republicans. There were moderate Democrats there from California and from Colorado. So you had a whole cross-section of people who, same aim, saying, hey, something's wrong in our body politic. Yeah. Something's wrong with our democracy. What do we do about it? Yeah, it just it does does my heart good to know people are at least asking questions, yeah. and at least trying in a way that could actually bring about some change. All right, that's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.